We're in a series called Living Life Intentionally. Uh, we're, we're really focusing on some areas of life that we really want to give special attention to. We don't want to go through life on autopilot. We want to have a purpose. We want to have a strategy. We want to have a plan. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to live as wise, particularly in certain areas of our life. We started the series with intentionally developing our spirituality because it's the foundation of everything else that we do and it is one of the primary tools and resources that we'll have in accomplishing the other areas that we're going to look at. We spent the last three weeks talking about being intentional in strengthening our relationships. If you weren't here last week, uh, at the end of the service, I uh, made available notes for all three weeks of this particular topic. I know there's some at our resource table. If you missed last week, you'd like to pick them up after the service, you can do that. But we need to move on today to a new topic that we need to be intentional about. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Scripture says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, that freedom's twofold. It's freedom from our sinfulness. It's freedom towards eternal life. But it's also freedom from religiosity and ritualism. I mean, the law of Moses had so many rituals and so many laws. And when Christ came and died on the cross, he released us from all of those rituals. 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul writes this, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, these Corinthians believers were kind of going too far with this idea of freedom in Christ. And so you notice that, that, that the line, everything is permissible for me, is in quotation marks. Apparently, Paul had heard that these believers were going around saying, well, everything's permissible for me. Everything's permissible for me. I'm free in Christ. I'm free in Christ. He says, yes, but not everything's beneficial for you. And yes, you have freedom in Christ, but you don't need to be mastered. You've got to protect yourself from being mastered by anything. In fact, Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set me free, but goes on to say, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Really, really important. That's why we need to be intentional about breaking our strongholds that many of us still have, that many of us are carrying into our Christian experience. Romans 7, beginning in verse 15, kind of echoes the cry of the believer who is besieged by a stronghold. Paul writes this, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep doing. He goes on to say, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin. Or it's a stronghold living in me that does it. He says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin or a prisoner of a stronghold that is at work within my members. And so Paul says, in conclusion, what a wretched man I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'll bet a lot of us can relate to that passage. I'll bet there have been times in our Christian life where we said, what is wrong with me? The things I want to do, for God, I don't seem to be able to be successful at. And it's those things that I don't want to do anymore that I always find myself doing again. And we fight this battle. And that battle is indicative of strongholds that are still present in our life that are yet to be broken. We need to be intentional about it. It's not just going to happen. We're going to have to put effort in it. We're going to have to put a strategy together so that we are no longer controlled by our strongholds, but we are receiving and living out of that freedom that Christ died to set us free. What's a stronghold? What is a stronghold? A stronghold is a fortress of the mind. Now, that's so important to understand it. The war is battled here in our mind. A stronghold is a fortress in our mind. That's why Paul later says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So it's a strong, fortress of the mind made of incorrect thinking patterns. Normally that's manifested in rationalizing things. Rationalizing what Scripture says and, and not following it. Well, I know the Bible says that 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 we should not be unequally yoked together with, with unbelievers. But, and you, you can go verse after verse, premise after premise. I know I shouldn't, but traumatic experiences. We'll look more at that here in a second. And just flat out disobedient behavior. Those all can become strongholds. Basically, it's a way of thinking and feeling that has now taken on a life of its own. It seems more powerful than we are. That's what puts us in, uh, in Romans chapter 7. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. The things I want to do, the way I want to live for God, I can't seem to do. Now, 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul is addressing these same folks that he addressed in 1 Corinthians that we looked at. And he says, the God of this age. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, whenever the Bible talks about the God of this age, the Bible is referring to Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, Satan is at work in people who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ to keep them blinded, to keep them either distracted or to, to try to convince them that this whole salvation thing, this whole Jesus dying on the cross and rising again on the third day is a bunch of hocus pocus, it's a bunch of mythology, it's a bunch of nonsense. Satan is actively at work in people who have never come to faith in Jesus Christ to make sure they never come to faith. However, I think we can use as an application the same passage of Scripture now and relate to believers. I'm, I'm going to change it. I'm going to rewrite it for believers. The God of this age has blinded the minds of believers so that they cannot enjoy the light of the gospel. See, Satan blinds us so that we can't really enjoy this freedom that we have in Christ. That we can't really enjoy our relationship with Jesus Christ and our new relationship with God. Pastor Segun Ayugbusi says it this way, Satan and his demons would rather deceive people in relative silence by shooting constant accusatory arrows against our hearts and our minds so that we feel so beat up emotionally that we barely have the capacity to ponder the truth of God's word which says the exact opposite of what the enemy claims. 
See, that's Satan's plan. He wants to keep us blinded. He wants to keep us in captivity to these strongholds in our lives so that we cannot enjoy our life with Jesus Christ. Matthew 12, 35, Jesus says this, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil evil things out of the evil that is stored up in him. So the question becomes, what's stored up in you? What's stored up in you? Because that's going to impact what comes out. Jesus was the first with with the old adage, or the new adage, garbage in, garbage out. What's stored up in you? Perhaps maybe lies that you've believed? John 8.44 says, when he, Satan, lies, he's speaking his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Satan will lie to you. He'll lie to you in the morning. He'll lie to you in the afternoon. He'll lie to you at dinner time. He'll lie to you when your head's on your pillow. He will lie to you all day long. And he's very successful at forming those lies in such a way that we believe them. See, strongholds, the support that buttresses strongholds are the lies that Satan plants in our minds so that he can continue, even after we become believers, he can continue to control us and rob us of what God wants us to have. The three main category of lies. Now, there are many variations of the lies, but most of them fall under three categories. The first one is, you are what you've done. In other words, you are your past. You know who you really are. You know what you thought. You know what you've done. You know how you violated God's principles. You know how you've been insensitive and hurt other people. You know. And Satan just wants you to believe that you are your past. You are what you've done in the past. The second is that you are what's been done to you. He wants to to keep you in a reference that you are a victim. And our culture just promotes that over and over again. We're a victim of the lack of finances. We're a victim of our race. We're a victim of our gender. We're a victim. We're a victim. We're a victim. We're hearing it over and over again. And that's one of the lies that Satan wants us to know. You are a victim of what has been done to you in your past. Now, here's the third lie that ties the first two lies together and creates a stronghold. And that is you or this thing will always be that way. You can never escape who you really are, and that's characterized by what you've done in the past. You can never be a healthy person because of what has been done to you. And those combine to build strongholds that bring hopelessness to us. Who am I kidding? I can never be a really conscientious Christian. I can never be an impactful Christian. I can never live for God. I'm going to be stuck in Romans 7 the rest of my life lamenting, why can't I live for Christ? See, maybe it's because we've believed some lies that Satan's planted in our minds. What's stored up in you? Perhaps it's a strong sense of worthlessness that normally is given birth from those lies. Norm Cohen from Psych Central says this, depression is often lurking in the shadows. Now look what he says. When you are depressed, most 
often you think that you are worthless. The worse the, dis- the, the depression, the more you feel worthless. See, you, it makes you feel worthless. If you're constantly dealing with discouragement, you're always discouraged. You wake up discouraged, you live discouraged, you go to bed discouraged, you're depressed. That's a stronghold that Satan has over you. He goes on to say, a survey by Dr. Aaron Beck revealed that over 80% of depressed people express dislike for themselves. According to Dr. Beck, when you, you are depressed, you feel the four Ds. You feel defeated. I'm never going to be successful. I've tried to live for you, God, but I just can't do it. I, I've tried to overcome this. I've tried. I just can't. You feel defective. What's wrong with me? Something's terribly wrong with me. You, you, you compare yourself to other people and you say, look at their marriage. Your marriage is so happy and healthier. Look at that person, such a devout Christian. What's wrong with me? I'm some kind of a mutant human being. I'm worthless. Or deserted. Not only am I defeated, not only am I defective, but nobody cares. Nobody gives a rip about me. Why? Because I'm not worth giving a rip about. I'm worthless. And therefore, I'm deprived. <laughs> you have a good life. Everything goes your way. Nothing goes away. My, I can never get a break. See, that is a stronghold that Satan keeps trying to reinforce in our life. Why do you feel worthless? Maybe childhood experience, such as bullying. You got bullied every day at school, and you came to look at yourself and evaluate yourself as, I'm a wimp. Why can't I stand up to that? Why do I tolerate? I'm just no good. I'm worthless. I'm a wimp. Or maybe it's domestic, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Something that has happened to you in your past. Again, that lie. And you say, I'm damaged goods. No one can love me. No one can want me. Or physical abuse. Many, many women who, who, who live with domestic abuse, Satan fills them with the lie, well, you provoked it, that's why. It's your fault. If you, if you were more sensitive, you could keep your mouth shut. Then, see, it's not true. But that's a stronghold that Satan brings us. Maybe it's other adult situations like being fired from a job or financial failure or dealing with a divorce. It could be feeling like the odd one out at school or work or in social kind of circles. Why? Why? I'm weird. I'm the odd one out. I'm not accepted into these social circles. I'm not on the A list. I'm not even on the B list. I'm the odd one out. See, that's Satan trying to isolate us and get us to believe that we are worthless. Discrimination in its very capacities, especially on a regular basis. All these factors can converge on us to convince us that we are worthless. We do not deserve to be loved. Psalm 139, on the other hand, verse 14 says, I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. You know what that's speaking to? You. Say, I am wonderful. I am wonderful. That's how God looks at you. 
That's what Scripture says about you. I know full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's how God looks at you. You're not worthless. You are wonderful. You were fearfully designed by him. He knit you together before you were even born. What's stored up in you? Maybe it's a stronghold of unforgiveness. Oh, this one is so common. Someone has attacked you. Someone has hurt you. And you just can't give it up. You let it control you day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And because you're doing that, a new struggle is going on inside you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So now we're struggled with this. Now the Holy Spirit's upset because we're hanging on to this unforgiveness. and We're, 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 we're just stuck and we're entrenched and we're in a stronghold of our mind. And we won't let it go. And because we won't let it go... We're grieving the Holy Spirit. We're at odds with the Holy Spirit. So we're not spiritually at peace. We're not spiritually at rest. John Hopkins Medicine at the medical center said this, whether it's a simple spat with your spouse or long-held resentment toward a family member or friend, unresolved conflict can go deeper than you may realize. Now, look, look what they say. Studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards in your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels in sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressures, and level of anxiety and depression. Because that's what a stronghold of unforgiveness will produce in you. And then you wonder why you don't feel joy in your salvation, why you don't feel peace in your relationship with Christ in the world. Maybe stored up you is unrepentant sin. Now, no, notice I, I didn't say unconfessed sin. I said unrepentant sin. It's a sin that we continue, continually go back to over and over and over again. And in fact, we may have confessed it over and over and over again. We may confess it every time we do it. But the problem is we've never repented of it. Now, what does repent mean? Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's not what it means. Biblical repentance is this. Changing our mind. Changing our mind. We've never come to the place where we've changed our mind about that behavior. Now, we, we, we might feel guilty, but we've not changed our mind. We've not come into agreement with God that it's sin and that it's unhealthy and it's unproductive for us, so we continue to live in it. David was wrestling with this because of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and with his subsequent premeditated murder of her husband Uriah. In Psalm 32, verse 3, he writes this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. See, we're dealing with this unrepentant sin. It's just a burden on us. He goes on to say, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. He repented. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
See, that stronghold was broken when that sin was not only confessed, but it was repented of. Perhaps what's stored up you is some unresolved hereditary patterns. Maybe that's what's stored up in you. I'm going to share a verse of scripture with you that some of you have not seen before, and it's going to be shocking to you. You ready for it? Deuteronomy 5.9. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. What? I'm a jealous God. Punishing the sins of the father to the third and the fourth generation. Now, that seems out of the character of God, doesn't it? That seems mean. That seems cruel. Now, whenever we get to passages like this, it's extremely important that we take the passage in the context it's written. It means when it's something like that and you go, What? Immediately that says, I need to read what came before this, and I need to read what comes after it, because that may explain this. So let's go back and read Become It For It, and verses uh, 7 and 8 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. So basically he's going back to the Ten Commandments, and he's saying, You shall not worship any other god but me. Now, because they were violating that, God said, I'm jealous because there is no other God. And therefore, the children to the third and fourth generation of the father who's embracing those gods will be punished. Now, that does not mean predetermined. Pastor John Piper puts it so well. The sins of the father are punished in the children through becoming the sins of the children. That's the difference. See, a, God, a father who chases another God will teach his children to worship that God. And because they now worship those false gods, the wrath of God is on them. The punishment of God is on them. And because they now pass it on to their children, which is the original person's grandchildren, the wrath of God is on that generation because they continue to sin against God. In other words, we can pass our strongholds down to our children, grandchildren, and even our great-grandchildren. We pass them through our personal example. Our children, watch what we do. And the old thing, you do as I say, not as I do. That's not going to work. They're going to watch. And the way we resolve conflict, the way we react to each other in marriage, the way we parent, the way we live our lives, the choices we make, the things that we do, those are all potential strongholds, if they're negative, if they're unbiblical, that we will pass on to our children because our children love in a healthy family and respect us. And well, if dad did it, if mom did it, it's okay to do. However, we also pass our strongholds, and this is breaking, this is, this is cutting edge, through epigenetics. 
Now, remember we talked about in the beginning of this series how God created us. God wired us in his own likeness. God created all of our functions. And there are some natural things that happen because of the way we're created. Since we have recently broken the human genome, all kinds of new information is coming out. Epigenetics deals with changes in gene expression not resulting from directly from mutations of DNA sequences, which lead to the formation of inherited traits both intragenerationally and intergenerationally. Now you're going, what? Let me illustrate it with one of the first studies that brought about this whole new field of epigenetics. In Norboten, Sweden, a group from the Karolinski Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, decided to do a study of the county of Norboten, which is at the extreme northern end of, of Sweden. In fact, it's part of the Arctic Circle. It was so remote that the people living in that region back in the 19th century were totally cut off from, the, from all the other people in Sweden and pretty much all the other civilization of the world at that time. They were agriculturalists. They depended on crops to feed their family and to feed their cattle and their sheep and their goats. Now, when famine came, it meant lives were lost. And so they wanted to study how the impact of these famines would, would impact their children and, and, and potentially other generations. So they, they did a study of people that lived, that were young, during these years of famine, compared to times of plenty, when there was all kinds of food. And so people, naturally, because they had come out of times where there were no food, they gorged themselves. They ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. Well, what they determined was, the data suggested that a single winter of overeating as a youngster could initiate a biological chain of events that would lead one's grandchildren to die decades earlier than their peers. What they found out initially was that those offspring of the people who were young during the years of famine and the experience of famine, their offspring tended to initially live six years longer than the offspring of those who lived during time of plenty and gorged themselves. Later, they did more studies into it and determined that not only six years, but potentially up to 32 years difference in lifespan between the descendants of those who went through the famine period and compared to the ones who went through the time of plenty. Now, epigenetics is about markers that change how our genes process. Basically, methylation is a process that happens on our DNA. It doesn't change our DNA, but it impacts our DNA. DNA stays the same, but what happens is methylation, different characteristics, markers will attach themselves to our DNA. And they will determine then which genes become predominant genes and which genes are suppressed. That's done in conjunction with histones. Histones are the the fiber that, the proteins that, that connect the methylations 
to the nucleotides. I know this is science. I'm, I'm trying to break it down, believe me. But what happens is we, the way we live and the thoughts we do and the behaviors we have become markers on our DNA that get passed down to our children and our grandchildren. Dr. Carolyn Lee says it this way, epigenetics highlights our ability to respond to our environment, which includes everything from what we think to what we generally understand by environmental exposure. A growing body of research is highlighting how these methylation and histone patterns change in response. Initially, it was all about our diet and what we ate. But then more studies said it's not just diet, it's in response to how we think and our lifestyle choices. A different research endeavor concluded this. Following such a trail, it turns out that apart from food, that's where all this was originally went, they said, not only are you what you eat, but you're what your grandparents ate and your parents ate, which is true because of epigenetics. But in addition to that, it is of great importance for the development of future generations whether we smoke. Because if you're a smoker, markers are hung on your DNA. Whether we move frequently, or whether we're stationary, or whether even we think positively, all these actions, actions influence the changes in our epigenome. In other words, we can pass our strongholds down to our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. That's why it's so important to break these strongholds. Now, passing down our strongholds to offering seems very unfair, doesn't it? Why would God design us that way? Well, again, take it all in context. Because yes, he'll punish either through the, the modeling of behavior that is embraced by the children who, who embrace the same behavior, or by epigenetics, but it says, by showing love to thousands of generations who love him and keep his commandments. Here's the great thing about epigenetics. We can replace negative markers with positive markers. Those of you, I see a lot of teens here. We've got a bunch of teens in the front row, and those who are young, those of you who have never had children, you're in the most optimum place for breaking strongholds and passing strongholds down because as you recognize them in your life and as you break them, you begin putting new markers on your DNA instead of potentially destructive markers on your DNA that you will pass to your children and they will pass to their children, your grandchildren, and potentially pass on to your great-grandchildren. Now, we can break them down through our personal example. Those of us who have already passed our DNA on, myself included, I've got grandchildren now. But I can go back and say, okay, I'm going to change some of the things that I did that are destructive, that are strongholds and model that change in the life of my child who may be struggling with that same stronghold so they want to change that stronghold in their life or maybe even in my, my, my grandkids. But again, we also can change our epigenetics. And those of you who are young, you have a fantastic opportunity to do that. This is why we need to be so intentional about breaking our strongholds. Because you know, we would say, well, you know, it's my body, and if I abuse it, you know, it's, it's on me. No, it's not. 
It's not far more than you. It's far more than you because everything that we do and everything that we say and, 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 and we think and the behaviors and the lifestyles, choices, they directly impact the people living around us right now. But in addition, they can be impacting generations to come. Matthew 12, 35 says what? A good man brings good things out of the good things stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil things stored up in him. The question is, what's stored up inside you? And maybe a more important question is, how do I get rid of it? How do I get rid of the junk? How do I break the strongholds? See you next week. See you next week.